If you have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to Exodus chapter 3? Or maybe you have it with you electronically. Go ahead and turn it on and go to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start out in Hebrews 11 for a minute, but primarily in Exodus chapter 3. Working through this hero series because we went through the book of Hebrews and kind of blew on by the chapter of 11 that talks all about the heroes. Last week when we were Talking about Noah, we discovered um, an element of faith, what faith looks like. And in Noah, we learned that faith is really my response to what God has revealed. God revealed things to Noah. Noah had a choice in whether or not he was going to respond to that. So faith is my response to what God has revealed. And in Noah's case, he responded amazingly. I want to start out with a quote this morning from J. Oswald Chambers that you can see on the screen. And it says this, Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as the present and the invisible as seen. I love that. It's a great statement. Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as the present and the invisible as seen. So in the big picture, in the big scheme of things, we understand as we just started out last week, this maturing faith that develops within us enables us to see what other people can't see. As a matter of fact, we anchored on 1 John 4.18. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. As a matter of fact, 4.18 goes on to say, If you still have fear over situations in your life, perhaps you haven't understood the perfection of that love that God has for you. So that there's fear associated because we don't fully grasp. And keep that thought in mind as we move forward and look at Moses this morning. Hebrews chapter 11 is this amazing chapter that talks about the great women and the great men of faith. And there's this very rhythmic flow to their story. I want you to see on the screen these four components to each one of them in chapter 11. They all have this exact same theme to it. The first one is that God speaks to them. God spoke, and in response, they listened. But it's not enough to just listen. They didn't just listen. There's a response mechanism. They're moved to respond because of the conviction about the things that they hear. And so that leads them into obedience. You'll you'll see that pattern with Moses this morning. Now, the the writer of Hebrews launches us on a journey because chapter 11 is all about faith. And by the time you get to verse 23, he starts talking about Moses. And here's what he says, verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. So Hebrews chapter 11 is talking about warrior Moses. Hebrews chapter 11 is talking about leader Moses. Hebrews chapter 11 is talking about mature Moses. And Moses, as a matter of fact, writes a fight song. Do you have a fight song that you like? A a special victory song? Maybe you're a fan of MSU, and you sing it loudly because of their victory season they're having. Michigan has a fight song. They can't sing it quite so loudly this year. (laughs) MSU can sing it loud. You can sing fight songs really, really loud if, if it's true of what you're singing about, right? So look at Moses' fight song with me. I want you to see it on the screen. Exodus 15, 2, it says this, The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Our God can take you out. That's what he's saying. This is post-Red Sea Moses. 
after God parted the waters. That is not the Moses of Exodus chapter 3. The Moses of Exodus chapter 3 is like anti-hero. He's the last guy to want to sign up for the assignment that God's about to give, to give him. Matter of fact, he stands as a stark contrast to Noah. Noah's this very willing hero, jumped in, all in. That's not Moses that you find in Exodus chapter 3. Just to catch you up very, very quickly at where we're at when we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1, what has transpired in chapter 2 is an amazing story. And if you've never read it, if you haven't grown up in church or you're not familiar with the Bible, find your way to Exodus 3 and 2 and 1 sometime today and read the story of Moses. But here's the short version. Moses has been raised in the palace of Pharaoh. It appears to be Pharaoh Tutmosis III of the 19th dynasty. We're not entirely sure, but it looks like him. But here's what we do know. He's the grandson of Pharaoh of Egypt. And this amazing story happens as a result of Pharaoh's daughter finding Moses floating in the River Nile in a basket. And she decides to adopt him and make her his own son. So he becomes the grandson of Pharaoh. And here's what he has, a life of prestige. He's got a life of privilege. Slaves bow in his presence. When his gold-trimmed chariot pulls up to the nightclub, everybody stops because they see Prince of Egypt. I know that guy. Everybody stops to watch him because he's the first guy to have the iPhone 6. He's just right there. He's on the cutting edge. Everybody respects him. He's a man's man. He's been trained in the military warfare of Egypt. He's a mathematician. He's got an Ivy League education according to Acts chapter 7. He's gone to the finest schools that Egypt has to offer. So when this guy arrives, people stop. He's the best and he's the brightest. And in his 40s, he's at the peak of his game. He's a man with a destiny. But if you read the story closely, what you discover is that young Moses had a very, very strong passion to fight injustice. And every time he finds injustice, he decides to step in. So what does he discover? He discovers one day as the prince of Egypt that an Egyptian taskmaster is beating a Hebrew slave, literally trying to beat him to death. And so Moses, because of his military background, literally uses his bare hands and kills the Egyptian taskmaster and buries him in a very shallow grave. But as a result of Grandpa Pharaoh hearing about what Moses has done, he puts him on Egypt's most wanted. He decides, this is a guy who can't live any longer. Even though he's my grandson, I want him dead. So he doesn't want him dead or alive, he just wants him dead. And when Moses hears about this, he runs literally to the other side of the world for their world. He runs across, around to the Sinai Peninsula to hide in the wilderness. The wilderness of Midian, Scripture calls it. And he takes on a new life. So the prince becomes a pauper. And literally overnight, no inheritance. He's been groomed for the throne. No throne. No food. Not even a place to sleep. He's got nothing. The prince becomes a pauper. So for the next 40 years, the fugitive Moses goes into hiding and he takes on a new identity. He gets relocated. During that period of time, Israel continues to suffer. Remember, he's the son of a slave, even though he was raised in Pharaoh's palace. And his people, the Hebrew people, are continuing, according to what Scripture says, by the end of chapter 2, are under the boot of a tyrannical king. 
We're told in verse 23 of chapter 2 that there comes a point when that king dies. Look with me on the screen. It says this in verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. Now, whoever the Pharaoh is doesn't really matter. What matters is that if Moses had gone back before this point in time, it would have meant death for Moses because this Pharaoh wanted him dead. So an insight here is that when the affairs of world governments line up, when everything is in place, then God's plan goes into action. So God waits waits for this ruler to die, and then he sets in motion his plans, and then we find, meanwhile, back in Midian, Moses has taken on a really difficult life. He's taken on the life of being a sheep herder, a, a job that's despised. Hardly the profession that Moses would choose. As a matter of fact, we find in Genesis 46, 34, the Egyptians hated sheep herders. They, they just thought they're of no repute. All shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. But job opportunities are pretty limited in the wilderness, right? What are you going to do? So he meets with his father-in-law and applies for a job. How would you like to have been at that job interview? Um, so what would you used to do, um, Prince of Egypt? Really? You got any proof of that? Uh, no. Okay, well, I got one opening. It's for a sheep herder. You want it or not? I just can't imagine how this thing is unfolding for Moses because he's gone from a life of privilege to a life of being detested. Moves forward. That's where we pick up in Exodus 3, verse 1. It says this, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So we got another dull day. Forty years of this stuff starts like any other. Moses is tending sheep. He's leading the flock around, apparently trying to find green pasture. And he approaches Horeb. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. The, The names are interchangeable in the Bible. So he approaches Mount Sinai and his world suddenly explodes. Go with me to verse 2. It says this, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Decades in the wilderness, you know that he's seen burning bushes before. I lived in the desert for two years. I understand. It gets really, really, really hot in the desert. The hot sun combined with very dry timber causes fires. You see bushes burning. But there's something extraordinary about this bush. It's burning, but it's not burnt. That's what Moses can't understand. That's the miracle. It's not consumed now, next, natural explanations really fail to explain this. I've, I've watched the Science Channel like you have. I've seen the History Channel. People try and explain this away by saying, well, maybe it was like red leaves on a bush and the sun was hitting it just right. Or, or perhaps it's these gaseous flowers on some bushes that explode when they get just hot enough. Have you heard those explanations before? People stretch trying to explain it away. But understand this, Moses would ignore normal. He's bored with normal. This is not normal. This is supernatural. Something he can't understand. That's why I've got to turn aside and see this marvelous sight. In other words, if your photocopier in your office after 40 years working there began to glow and then talk to you, you would know it seems freaky, right? Okay, this is his photocopier. He spent his life in the wilderness. And the photocopier is glowing and then begins 
talking? What do you do with that except go check it out? So he's focused on this really bizarre phenomenon. Now, the symbolism is powerful. See, in Egypt, where he was raised, they worship nature. There's a god of the sun. There's a god of the moon. There's a god of the Nile River. There's a god of the frogs. There's a god of the wheat harvest. They're a polytheistic people. But God says, I am the God who created all this. So the symbolism is really powerful because where Moses comes from, nature is worshipped. But God shows he created nature. I rule. I can make a bush that doesn't even burn. Yet it looks like it's burning. I'm thinking Moses must have watched this for a while because what we see unfolding in verse 4 gives us an insight into that. Verse 4 says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moshe, Moshe. And he said, here I am. Love this verse. As a matter of fact, I love all these verses that are coming up, but especially this one. God can light up Mount Sinai, glowing with fire as though a nuclear bomb has just gone off. But in this case, for starters, he just uses a bush because it's what Moses can handle in that moment. He's freaked out just by a bush that burns. Matter of fact, if you go a few chapters ahead, you do see God light up Mount Sinai like a nuclear bomb went off. But in this case, it's just a bush. Now, it's weird enough to see the fire. But then the bush talks. I mean, you want to talk about making somebody back up? How creepy would that be? Now, here's what you need to notice as you look at that passage. Maybe this has escaped your attention before. I know it's a very familiar story, but you hear God calling to Moses. That's not what you need to notice. What you need to notice is this. Moshe. Moshe. See, Moses doesn't need to introduce himself to God. God knows exactly who he is. There's no need to exchange God with Moses by saying, hello, my name is. We do that, right, in our relationships if we've never met somebody before? Hello, my name is Mark Kring. What's your name? And then they would return with their name. There's no need for that here. God already knows Moses. He knows everything about him. He watched him as a baby floating down the Nile River. The holy God of the universe has this personal, intimate knowledge of his children. This is so consistent with Scripture. Look with me up on the screen, Isaiah 43. Isaiah wrote this, but now this is what the Lord says, I have called you by name, you are mine. This is the character of our God. He knows you personally. He wants a personal relationship with us. Verse 5 says this, Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Even here in the wilderness, Entering into God's presence requires, it demands preparation. So God says, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off. Now, having lived in the desert, I understand how important sandals are. You want something on your feet, right? If you've been in the desert, you know there's things that will prick and bite you. There's there's thorns that will get you if you're barefoot, and there's things that want to sting you if you're barefoot. And Moses knows how important these sandals. Matter of fact, he probably built these sandals. Most likely, he made his own shoes. That's what you did to survive in that period of time. Here's what we see coming out of this passage. The only way to enter into the presence of a holy God is for God to declare us holy. Moses, don't come any closer. This is holy territory. 
In order for you to be in my presence, you need to do something. So the only way for God to declare us holy is by doing what he says. That's why God sent Jesus to make us holy. Scripture says, 1 Corinthians, he is my holiness. Matter of fact, it goes one step further. It says, he died to take away all of my unholiness. That's why Jesus came. Scripture says this, Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Even if you don't feel it this morning, if you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, he is your savior, God sees you as holy, even if you don't feel holy. So what I find here is that what God did through the cross enables us to approach the Holy One. When you come to God, when you come to the cross, you're kicking off your shoes. You're saying, I'm bringing nothing of myself. Part of the concept of coming to the communion table with just bringing yourself. It's just you and God. It's not what you can do. It's what God did. Here's the remarkable part about that verse. The very place where sheep and goats have just walked before was unholy, God declares holy. Why? Because God is present. And what had been unholy became holy. That's exactly how it is with you. Because of what God did for us, what was unholy has now been made holy because of Jesus, because of His presence within us, right? Not because of something we did, but because of what Jesus did. Verse 6 says this, He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Love this verse too. I want to tell you why. God says this very specifically, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was. I was the God of Abraham, but he died. I was the God of Isaac, but he died. I was the God of Jacob, but he died. That's not what your God says, because he's the God of the living, right, church? He's not the God of the dead. That sounds like something Jesus would have said, right? Look with me on the screen at Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus said this, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. To this very day, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living with God in heaven. You will see them one day because you will be living in eternity. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. I'd love to spend more time on that, but we've got to move forward. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. The opening words explodes on Moses' ears. In an instant, he's taken right back to reality. When do you think the last time was that he heard somebody talk about Egypt? He'd been living in Midian, in the wilderness. I think this has probably been years since someone's had a conversation with him about that region. So God's clarifying he has not forgotten about his people. Moses might have forgotten. Maybe years have gone by to the degree that he rarely ever thinks about it anymore. But God says, I have not forgotten. This is what this should tell you. God can and God does and God is aware of the stream of human events. He is intimately interested and he does intervene in human affairs. He knows exactly what you're going through this morning. It does not escape his attention. 
He knows what personally is happening in your life. He knows what's happening on a global scale. God is aware. He's aware of what happens on planet Earth. And he sees our suffering and he cares about it. He says right there, I am aware and I am concerned. So what he says to Moses, he says to everyone, I am full of compassion. Verse 8 says this, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So Israel's got a need, right? They've got a huge need. But God's got the solution. God's got a solution specifically to meet their need because he's aware of the desperate situation. So he says this to Moses, unlike the sands of Egypt, I've got a better place in mind for you. He says, I'm going to take you out of that land to a better land. When you hear the phrase, the land flowing with milk and honey, God's talking about agriculture because these are going to be an agrarian people. Because they're going to be an agrarian people, they need to know that where they're going is going to be a place that they're going to prosper in. Now, up until this point, I'm thinking our hero has to be thinking, this sounds really, really good. Yeah, look at what God is going to do. The God of wonders is going to intervene and go into rescue mode. Excellent. That's up to this point. And then God drops the bomb. Watch. Verse 10. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Say what? Right? Would you not be asking God to say that again? Hey, I'm, I'm hearing the crackling of the bush. I'm not sure I really understood what you said. This sheep are really loud. I need to hear that one more time. You're going to send me? I love this. Why? Because the I am is doing the sending. He says, you're going to go in my strength. Why is that significant right here? Because it's not about Moses. It's not about his strength. Moses previously had tried to do this very thing in his own timing. The young Moses, when he was prince of Egypt, thought he could deliver Israel. Fast forward with me just mentally. Acts chapter 7. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he's about to be stoned by the leaders of Israel. Before they kill him, he goes on a very long explanation of the history of God intervening in the lives of men. He starts with Abraham. By the time he gets to Moses, he says something that we find no place else in the Bible. He says this about Moses specifically in Acts 7.25. And he, Moses, supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Moses tried doing it earlier when he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. He thought, I'll, I'll use my superpower. I'm the prince of Egypt. I'll free these people. He thought that they would understand, but they did not understand. Here's a reminder for me. Mark Kring, don't get ahead of God. Never get ahead of God because the very thing that Moses considered himself qualified for 40 years earlier, now God says, you're qualified. Now you're ready. Now it's time. Why? Because the I am is sending you. I am sending you, Moses. Go with me to verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Is that not an anti-hero question? I mean, Superman has just refused the cape. 
<laughs> You've got to find somebody else to wear those leotards, God. That is not for me. Who am I? Would the 40-year-old Moses have asked that question? I don't think he would have. I think the young Moses would not have asked that question because we've already seen how bold and brash he is. Who am I sounds like a really reasonable argument on Moses' part, right? We would ask that same question, who, who am I? See, here's why he's asking that. He's been gone 40 years. What can a shepherd do against the world's superpower? Remember, he's been behind the command bunker. He's been inside the Pentagon. He knows what Egypt's power is. He knows what kind of a chariot Pharaoh drives. He understands what he's being asked to do. And literally, he's thinking, I'm normal. I have no superpowers. I'm no longer the prince. Who am I? See, he's thinking back to the very reason. He's gone. I failed once. See, what you see here is God is about to use a person who is intensely aware that he's flawed, that he's got defects, that he's not the guy. He doesn't have the best and the brightest anymore. He's normal. But God knows him intimately. Moshe, Moshe, here am I. Moshe, listen to me. Now, what God's asking him to do makes him feel like he needs superpowers, but God knows him intimately. And if God believes you are capable, you are capable. If God says you are capable, you are capable because it's God doing it through you. Now, from a human perspective, Moses is the perfect guy for the job. He's Egyptian enough to confront the Egyptians. He's Hebrew enough to love the Hebrews. He seems like the perfect guy. That's all true. But it's not the answer that God gives to Moses' question. Look with me at verse 12 to see how God responds. God says this in verse 12, And he said, certainly, I will be with you. See, it's not about who you are. It's about who God is. It's not about who I am. It's about who God is and what he can do. Rather than just hearing this from me, I want you to see a quote from Peter Enns, a very respected theologian. Look at the way that he sums this verse up. He says, Moses' assertion that he cannot do this task is correct, but entirely beside the point. He is not doing the saving. Moses says, I cannot do this. Yahweh responds, you're not. I am. Therefore, whatever doubts Moses may have had about his own abilities were totally irrelevant. God had promised to be with him, and with God, all things are possible. Amen, New Hope? That's the truth of Scripture. That's what Jesus said. Now, it is so easy for you and I to look back at the story and wonder, what in the world are you doing, Moses? You're arguing with the God of wonders? He's got more firepower than Pharaoh ever dreamed of in his little pinky. Why would you go into debate mode? But in that very same moment, I have to ask myself this question. Do I do that? Do I argue with God when he brings opportunities my way? Do you do that? Have you had that debate with God? God says, here's what I want you to do. You know that God's opened up an opportunity, maybe a conversation with a coworker, And we go into the qualification mode saying, I don't think I have all the answers yet. Somebody else is going to have to take that one. That's not me. 
Look at God's further response, verse 12. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Now, interestingly, Israel's being rescued to worship. Okay, just hold that thought for a moment. They're being rescued from slavery to worship God. But we come to God's promise to Moses, and he says, here's a sign for you, Moses. When you come to the mountain, you're going to worship. Now, how is that a sign? That's a sign after the fact. What's weird about that sign is it points to the future. That's like what Isaiah wrote 400 years before Jesus was born, saying, this will be a sign to you. The virgin will conceive and she will bear a son, and you will name him Emmanuel, for he shall save his people from their sins. How is that a sign? Well, it's a future sign. In other words, Moses being given a sign to assure him that will not be confirmed until he leads God's people out. The success of the mission is the sign. Here's what that really means. Moses can only receive what God has just asked him to do by faith. He's got to take God at his word. He's got to believe that what God says is going to happen is actually going to happen in order to move forward in faith. Do you know that's exactly what he did? Let's look at postgraduate Moses who already crossed the Red Sea. Hebrews 11:27 speaks specifically about what he did. Here we see this on the screen. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. See, faith enables us to see what is invisible to other people. That's what Scripture tells us. So we look really, really closely at what God is committing to Moses. What has he promised him? This is a sign to you. When you have led them out of Egypt, you will worship me at Mount Sinai. God is committing, Moses, you're not going to die. Even though Pharaoh wants to kill you and Pharaoh's daddy wants to kill you, you're not going to die. You're going to come back here and you're going to worship me at this mountain. He's asking Moses to trust him at his word, saying, I got this, Moses. Do you believe me? Here's my temptation. Let's see if you identify with this. God brings an opportunity your way. You know that God has set up the circumstances. And here's the typical response. Yeah, this sounds great, God, but you know these sheep over here? They gotta be put to bed. Somebody's gotta protect them from the wolves. Did you see all the wolves around here, God? I've gotta do this. I've got this job that my father-in-law gave me and it's a pretty important task, so you're gonna have to find somebody else. You ever done that? Or is that just me? I'm the only one with my hand up, so the rest of you are lying. We all do it, right? God brings something our way and we immediately disqualify ourselves saying, you're going to have to find another hero. See, Moses is us. We, we are Moses. We're normal. This is what you find normal doing. Verse 13 says this, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, the first challenge was, who am I, right? If you read the literal Hebrew text here, when Moses raises this as an issue, he's, he's saying it this way. Okay, let's just suppose that I actually do this thing you're asking me to do. He's not saying, behold, I am going. He's saying, let's suppose. Let's just play out this scenario, God, that if, when I arrive, they start asking me questions. So, Fear kicks in, and fear for him at this point is a test. He's afraid somebody's going to ask him God questions. Somebody's going to start asking him theology questions that he can't answer. 
what's his name, this God that you're sending to us? Now, we understand that God's already introduced himself, right? God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people of Israel knew that because they knew him by the name Yahweh. So why is Moses asking that again? Well, he can hardly believe his own eyes, let alone try and convince someone else. Can you imagine that conversation going to Egypt to people who have been in bondage for 400 years and saying to them, you know, um, I was just out in the desert walking around and this bush started talking to me. Uh-huh. Hey, would you have been smoking, Moses? Okay, you can hear that, right? People, why would they believe him? What would cause them to want to? See, he's worried people are going to ask hard questions. So he puts the phrase this way, what's the name of the God that's going to help us out? Now, very interesting, he doesn't use the word who is this God, but what is this God? In the Hebrew language, the word what is the word mah, M-A-H. And it literally means what is the character? They're inquiring. What is there to believe about this God that we should trust him? It's seeking into the integrity to interpret what is the makeup of this one. Not who, who seeks a title. What is an inquiry into the essence? So God responds, verse 14, God said, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Ever watch The Wizard of Oz? Got the the lion, the tin man, Dorothy. Scarecrow. One of those four gets into the Emerald Palace. I mean, all all the four get in there. One of them has the gall to ask the great and powerful Oz who he is. I am the great and powerful Oz. You you get the picture, the the flames, the smoke, everything, and it causes them to cower. That's not what's going on here. Many people look at this and think, man, God is mad. That is not what's going on, and he's not deliberately trying to avoid giving his name. Matter of fact, the context of it shows he's actually doing the opposite. Let me show you that in just a minute. But you want to see mad God? Go to Exodus chapter 4. That's angry God when Moses finally gets to the end of the questions and he says, yeah, you better choose somebody else. I don't fit into that Superman outfit. That's mad God. That's chapter 4. But here, God's doing something entirely different than that. He gives two answers here, and they're found in verse 14 and verse 15. When it says, God said... And he said, or furthermore, he said. See, God's taking the initiative, and here's what he's explaining. Since this is a character question, the word mah has been used. What is his name? What has God already said about himself? Somebody help me out with this part. Look at your Bible at verse 12, and what did God say he would do for Moses? Say it real loud. Be with him. Is that a character claim? Absolutely. God has said, you're going to inquire into my character? Verse 12 says, I will be with you. God says, I am who I am. So I am expresses the nature, the character, the essence of I will be with you. I am the God 
who was. I am the God who is. I am the God who forever will be. I will be with you. This is His forever name. It's His character. I am He who was, who is, and who always will be. Jesus said the exact same thing. So it summarizes really quickly. Moses is shocked. He's trying to duck out of what God's asking him to do. He immediately objects. And God responds with, I am, I was, I am, and always will be, Moses, with you. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. In the Hebrew language, the word elders literally means the bearded ones. They've lived so long, got some gray hair. They're aged enough that they bring wisdom and leadership. They're the tribal leaders of all of Israel. And by this point, we understand there's three million of them, three million people living in Egypt who have these elders as heads over the tribes. Moses, who has disappeared for 40 years, is now supposed to come back to these individuals who have been slugging it out day in and day out trying to make bricks watching their people die in bondage. You know they stink to high heaven. And he's supposed to go to them and say, hey, uh, guys, God told me you're supposed to go with me to go see Pharaoh. (laughs) How do you think that's going to go? Well, God says it's going to go great. As a matter of fact, as you look at verse 18, this is what God promises Moses. He says, they will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. There's a really interesting change of language there. God didn't say, go to Pharaoh and tell him, I am has sent you. Don't go to Pharaoh and say, Yahweh has sent you. He understands Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is polytheistic. So Moses, when you show up in Pharaoh's palace, tell him the God of the Hebrews has sent you, that you're there representing the God of the Hebrews. See, Pharaoh will understand that. He thinks of many gods, multiple gods, but God chooses a change of language here just to help Pharaoh. And so making just a very limited request of Pharaoh, Moses, just ask him for a long weekend, just like three days. See, God's staging it from simple things to harder things, to make it easy for Pharaoh to respond to. Why? Because God knows this king, and this is a really important point for you to remember. God knows exactly what his reactions will be, even though he's an evil man. See, God knows both the hearts of the evil and of the holy, and he knows this man. He knows the hearts of world leaders. He knows what's going on with ISIS in the Middle East right now. He knows what motivates people and why they do what they do. Even though we don't understand it, God is very, very aware. So Moses has given a really strong warning in verse 19. Moses, you're about to come up against a great obstacle. And that obstacle is going to give you rejection. 
Here's God's warning. Do not misinterpret the rejection to mean that I am not with you. Pharaoh is going to give you a hard time. And I know that he means evil. But don't misinterpret that. See, how many times have we gone into a situation where we think that we're doing the thing that God has asked us to do and we meet with an obstacle or we meet with rejection and we immediately take that as the, whoa, God must not have been in that. That is not the truth. God says, I am with you, so don't fall for that, Moses. When you know that you've been called by God to do something, see it through to the end. Let's go into the last verse here. This is where it ends. Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. This becomes a preview of coming attractions. For the next 11 chapters, God unfolds how he's going to deliver these people. Now, very interestingly, if you get into reading 4 and 5 and 6 later today, just understand this, especially chapter 4. God made a promise to Moses. The elders of Israel will listen to you, Moses. So Moses immediately replies back, yeah, but let's just suppose that they don't. What if they don't listen to me, God? Now, God's already promised that he would. This is the height of disrespect. When God says he will do something, he will do it. So Moses goes into back and forth mode. That's why you see chapter 4, God angry. Here's what we end up with. Moses will learn. He will learn that God is not a God who makes things up as he goes along. Nothing escapes his attention. The future is as much in his control as the past was in his control. He doesn't make things up. But Moses doesn't understand that. Moses does not yet understand Romans 8.31. How many of you here learned that verse as a kid? Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who's against us? Do you believe that this morning? If God is for you, who could be against you? See, what you're seeing here is that Moses has this progressing faith. He doesn't yet understand 1 John 4.18, that perfect love casts out fear. He's afraid. He's the anti-hero, but nonetheless, he'll become a hero. He gives me so much hope because I see myself in him. So let's leave immature Moses barefoot at the burning bush, cowering before a holy God. Here's what we take away. We have just seen a God who saves is not only the God who saves, but he's also the God who sends. Every person in here this morning who names the name of Jesus Christ, you held up the cup this morning, you held up that piece of bread and said, I believe in Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Every one of you then has received two callings. The first one is that you were called into relationship. The second one is that God has called you to send you out to be his representative in this world. In some way, in the workplace where you're at, that you would reflect God in this world that you live in. Moses doesn't quite get that yet. But when Scripture says that we are Christ's workmanship, there's a component to that you really need to understand. Look with me on the screen at this, Ephesians 2.10. It says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That concept that we are God's workmanship means he's preparing us. Now, some people are willing to wait until they're fully prepared. Don't do that. When God brings the opportunity is when God knows that you're ready. Some people feel like they're never ready. 
and they live out their entire life missing all kinds of God opportunities. We are God's workmanship. There's things that God has in store for you that perhaps you're shutting down and not jumping on, things that Jesus prepared in advance. Take this thought away with you. Even if you feel unprepared, God uses normal. God waited till Moses has lost all of his superpowers. He's normal. He's normal. He's become a shepherd. Not part of the career path he would have chosen, but God used that career path to prepare him. See, God uses the experiences you're going through right now to prepare you. Even if you're working in a job which feels like a dead-end job to you, you feel like the job that you're in doesn't match up with your skill set, you know you're capable of so much more, don't despise where you're at. God can certainly use where you're at to prepare you for the future. He'll use it for our good. He's going to use it for His glory. That's the way God works. So I leave this knowing that all I really need to know about Moses is summed up in one simple little verse, and this verse gives me so much help for myself and for us. Because Exodus chapter 3, Moses, the one who's arguing with God, he got to be postgraduate Moses. He got to be a man of faith. It says this in Hebrews eleven twenty six. Speaking of Moses, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt... For he was looking to the reward. It's a guy who lived with the treasures of Egypt. And he was willing to reject it for the sake of Christ. Man, would you not like that to be said about you? That when God brought opportunities that you rejected what the world had to offer in favor of what Jesus offers? What a postgraduate degree. Maturing faith which enables us to see what other people cannot see. Amazing. I'm going to pray for you that way. Would you pray with me that way? You pray silently. I'll pray out loud that God would help us get to the place where we can see what others cannot see so that we can respond to Him when He brings opportunities our way. Let's pray. Father, you're looking at an auditorium full of Individuals who feel a lot like normal Moses and feel incapable. But we know that it's not us doing it. We would be the first to declare, it's you. And in this service, it's very easy to say that on Sunday morning. But God, so many times we would confess it feels like us. Like it's about us. We have the confidence to know that you only do things that you believe that we are prepared for and which you're working through us. So I pray that you would take us to such a place in our walk with you that we become so mature in our walk that we can see what others don't see. That you would equip us to respond to your work, to your activity, to not miss the things that you've called us to do as your people. Father, certainly help us not to make excuses. So, Father, I I would pray that you be gentle and tender with us as, as we claim the fact that we're not there, but we want to be. And we'll, we'll leave that with you, Father. That is enough for us right now to go out of this auditorium knowing that you're going to bring opportunities our way this week 
how we respond is a direct reflection of what we believe about you. Strengthen us, Father. Thank you for this time in which we have been able to talk about you and about King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.